not checking any texts, just to get my timer set. It's good for you. Um, before I, I read our, our scripture for this morning, just a brief uh, introduction. If you've never read the book of Hosea or it's been a while, what is Hosea about? And uh, by way of uh, introduction, uh, Hosea uh, is, a, is a minor prophet in the Old Testament, and he, he's, a, he's a prophet who lives in the southern kingdom who God sends to the northern kingdom. And that that is already confusing enough, Israel at this point in time in its history has had some turmoil, to say the least, and they have divided in the two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. And so God, by way of, 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 of the way he works, sends the prophet Hosea to the north to, to preach repentance to them. They are all but apostate at this point in their history. And, and you might think of Hosea as sort of this sort of last, he is the last prophet to the north uh, before uh, the consequences of breaking that covenant are brought to fruition. In 722, God uses Assyria to judge Israel, and they come in and, and they take out Israel to the north. But Hosea is that last prophet that goes there, that communicates God's word, and that is what we find in his book to us. And it is, in essence, a book that, that is, for Hosea, a message to, to remind God's people, hey, remember our covenant promises that I will be your God and you will be my people. And, and what many of us might, and what I want to really inform or bring to the forefront, press home about Hosea, is it's not so much a, a book about what did they do? And what do they need to stop doing? Although it's there and that is important, what Hosea really is about is who God is and what he truly thinks of his people. Who God is and what he truly thinks of his people, quite unlike any other book that, that, that you read in the Old Testament, Hosea gives us the clearest picture of what God thinks about his people who are what? Like a spouse to him, as you'll hear. But not just any spouse, an unfaithful spouse. And what Hosea shines a candle towards, what Jesus is ultimately a spotlight to, is how the God of the Bible goes after unfaithful people. That's the book of Hosea. How he goes after his spouse who doesn't deserve him, nor really wants anything to do with him in order to, to do what? To show his committed, faithful, steadfast love to her. So I want us to have that in mind as we read uh, Hosea, and, and really, uh, I'm, I'm operating out of the first three chapters of this book, uh, but we're reading the bookends this morning, so, um, so as to not read three chapters here, and uh, so just understand that. Let's then give our reading, our attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, and then we will conclude with chapter 3, verse 1, uh, with the other bookends. So let's do that. This is the Word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bere, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. 
though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would do a miracle, and by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts towards you, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not by your Spirit, and that you would do this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the question, what does it mean to be the people of God? And, and also, just real quick by review, we're this week and next week, we're going to kind of do some topical things, and then we're going to start our series in John on, uh, I guess it's the Sunday of Labor Day weekend, which is going to look at these dialogues or discourses in John that we don't see in any other gospel, finishing um, with the I am statements of John. So just a little bit about where we're going, uh, but for this morning and next Sunday, a little bit more topical. Last week, we looked at the question, what does it mean to be the people of God? And uh, what we said about that, what it means to be the people of God is to be a people, a church, uh, Christians who have Jesus at the center of all that they do and all that they are. And we looked at how this reflects itself or how it applies itself in resting in Christ alone, his gospel, his work for us, his story of grace, uh, reminding each other as a people of that and then reflecting that reality to the watching world. Well, this morning I want to ask a different question and that is, what is the Bible about? What is the Bible about for you? Somebody comes up to you after the service or at work tomorrow, wherever you find yourself, and says, hey, what's the Bible about? Like, what is the main storyline of Scripture? You're a Christian. You go to church. What is it about? Well, how would you answer that question? What would you say? So let's try to answer that this morning by looking at these three points, though, from Hosea. And that is, I want us to see how God relates to us according to Hosea in an effort to answer that question. I want to look at how we relate to God according to Hosea, and then I want to see what God desires according to Hosea. Okay? So how, how is it that God relates to us according to Hosea? How do we relate to him? And then what does God desire according to Hosea? So let's take that first one. How God relates to us according to Hosea. And the answer to that is that he relates to us as a faithful, committed spouse. That is, he relates to his people through covenant promise. As you just heard read uh, from, from verse 2 we, from Hosea, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, and, uh, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And if this is your first time reading Hosea, you might be like, Hey, easy, buddy. I, you know, I got it. I got it. Is there a need for saying this over and over again? And of course there is. But in these very first verses, God asked Hosea, the prophet, to take this wife of whoredom or harlotry or promiscuity or unfaithfulness and to have children, as the text says, for the land, which is symbolic for the nation of Israel, 
commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he, Hosea, went and he took Gomer, as it says, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now you might be asking what I'm asking, why does God ask his prophet to go do this? This doesn't seem very Christianly. (laughs) Why does he ask him to go do this? Well, instead of just proclaiming a word or a message of repentance to God's people as prophets tended to do, God wants Hosea to do something he's never asked a prophet to do, and that is to live out a, quote, personified metonym, as one scholar puts it, or a living metaphor of what Israel as a whole is doing with relationship to God. And in this living metaphor, Hosea will play God, the faithful committed spouse, and he will marry Gomer, who by anyone's standard, right, is the opposite of faithful as far as marriage goes. And by doing this, Hosea will be living out God's message to Israel, which is simply saying, here I am, Committed to you in the covenant of marriage, as it were, yet you are anything but committed to me. Remember your promise. Come back to me. As Derek Kidner writes, what Hosea had to do was in miniature what God had done in giving his love to a partner with a history and a roving eye. This is how God relates to us, though, according to Hosea, as a committed, faithful spouse to someone who does not want him or trust him or deserve him. Now, when you think about God as a committed, faithful, loving spouse, the first thing that comes to your mind this morning, just being honest, it's typically not for me. It's interesting to me how the Bible goes out of its way to say God is like a loving father. He's like a good shepherd. He's like a friend. He's a helper. Yet we tend to default to something more distant and uncaring. Perhaps God is an angry boss to you who only cares about me when I do the things that he wants me to do. Maybe God is like a distant relative for you this morning that checks in every once in a while but doesn't really care about what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. Or perhaps God is a benevolent, cute, cuddly, old grandfatherly figure that is there to encourage you on your way. I'm sure there are others. But I don't know if you're like me, but no matter how much theology I know and how well I know the Bible, and I know it pretty well, according to the PCA anyways, there's something in me that defaults to some unbiblical caricature of God that isn't a faithful, committed, loving spouse. And I think that's fascinating. There's something in me that just won't fully believe it. It's like I don't trust that God is truly good or something. But it's why the Bible actually spends so much time trying to deconstruct and reconstruct our thoughts about God, so much so that God would give us a book such as Hosea to get a window into his heart towards us that of a faithful, committed husband to his church. This is how God relates to us according to Hosea. But actually, it's how God has always related to us, how he has always related to his people. He has always related to his people through what? Covenant or promise. And as long as those promises have existed, he has never been unfaithful to those promises. 
He's never broken them. He's never changed his mind. He's never thought, well, I'm kind of tired of Ryan right now. He just won't get it together. I think I'll move on. Never. Never. All the same is true for you this morning. He has never thought, okay, I have given her a dozen chances to change and to fix that issue, and she just won't get her act together. She just keeps messing up. I'm done. Never. Never. Yet, how many times have we thought that about God towards ourselves? See, God relates to us through promise And if there's one thing that the Bible screams from the mountaintop over and over again, it's that God keeps his promises. This is how he relates to us, through covenant promise like a marriage. This is the first point. Second, how do we relate to God according to Hosea? And this is a little different. This is a little different. By now, you might have guessed who we are in this story. We are Gomer. We are the unfaithful spouse, to put it mildly this morning. In chapter 1, we read of the children. We didn't read this this morning, but if you keep reading, you read of the children that Gomer uh, has after Hosea marries her. And it's not even clear that all of these children are, are, are Hosea's. We can discuss that another time. But as we go through here, the names of these children are important because they speak of the consequences of Israel's unfaithfulness and what God is then obligated by covenant promise to do because the promises have been broken. We experience this in relationship today. Our actions have consequences. But the first child is named Jezreel, which sounds like Israel, doesn't it? And it means God sows. And what the text says is that what will be sown, though, is, is, is not this sort of, you will be with me in this land of milk and honey, but, but bloodshed will be, will be sown, as verse 4 reads. And this will be done because of their sin. The second child that, that they have, they name, or that, that, that Gomer has, is named No Mercy, as you read on. And the third is Not My People. Again, all consequences for breaking the covenant, for being unfaithful. How would you, children uh, who are in here, or anybody really for that matter, uh, as you're heading back to school here in a couple weeks, um, how would you like to show up on the first day and say, hey, my name is No Mercy. Nice to meet you. Or my name is not my people. How was your summer? Right, that, would, that would be great, wouldn't it? But again, what the names represent Right? And what they are trying to communicate to the northern kingdom, to Israel, are the consequences of breaking the covenant. And this is how God's people now relate to him because of their unfaithfulness. That is before Israel lived with God in a land uh, that had everything they needed. Now it's going to be war-torn. There's going to be bloodshed. Before Israel experienced the blessings of God's mercy as his chosen people, but now they will no longer experience that mercy. Before they had the privilege of being the people of God, belonging to him as family, now they will not be his people. This is Hosea's message. See, unless there is real repentance on behalf of Israel, this will be the result. It is what you might call spiritual adultery is their problem. 
See, for Hosea, what the physical adultery or the whoredom that we read about that Gomer represents speaks to the spiritual adultery of Israel as they pursued and as they worshiped other things. I wish we had more time to look at this this morning, but the real tragedy as we continue along in Hosea, the real tragedy of their sin, and I would argue all of Scripture, is that according to Hosea, it's less about what what Gomer or Israel has done, and it's more about where the things they have done has taken them, which is where our sin always takes us, and where that is is a place where we no longer know who God is. For Gomer, it's a place where she no longer knows her husband. And what this means is that the tragedy of sin is not just behavioral. It's relational. And this is what breaks the heart of God as our faithful spouse. What Gomer is to show Israel is that they did not know the Lord affectionately and intimately as God desires, which is what the word for know in the, in, in the Hebrew really means, right? It is a, an affection, an intimate knowledge of somebody, and when you no longer know or desire to know someone intimately or personally, you begin looking for other what? Spiritual partners, as it were. And, and, and for Israel, this looked like pagan worship. Like what we said last week, your heart will worship something. It is looking to find rest in something. Uh, and, and this is what it looked like for Israel. As they ignored God, as they forgot about him, they would go to other places. It also looks like not recognizing nor giving thanks to God for the good things that he gives his people. We end up giving thanks to other things, primarily ourselves, for what we have done and achieved. Not what God has blessed us with. It looks like a marriage where one spouse doesn't even think of the other anymore, where he or she is not even on their mind. In chapter 2 of Hosea, God is laying out a case against Israel. He's kind of come out of that living metaphor between Hosea and Gomer. Now he's addressing Israel, and he's he's, um, talking about the judgments that will occur for Israel's idolatry, for her breaking the covenant. And in verse 13, we read this, that, that Israel has burned offerings to the Baals and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after other lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. It's amazing that the creator of this universe would speak in such a language to us. <clears throat> but the picture here in verse 13 is one of, of one getting ready before the big date. They're in their, in their room, right, right, putting on the makeup, getting the hair just right, wondering if, if they'll like these clothes. I don't know about these shoes. But the point is, is that their mind is captured by their other lover. Nowhere in their day-to-day thoughts are they thinking of their first love, of their faithful spouse in this case, who is Yahweh. They have forgotten them. And they are only thinking about this other person. They no longer know their true spouse, and this is what our sin does to us. It's no wonder we think of God uh, as an angry boss or a distant relative at times. Our sin it drives us away from God. And we can be coming here every single Sunday, right, without confession of sin, without, without knowledge of what our sin is really doing, and not know him intimately and personally as he desires. But this is what our sin, sin does. It drives us away from him to the point where we don't Think of him or desire to know him. And this is how we now relate to him according to Hosea. 
See, the worst thing that your sin did this morning was it kept you from knowing God intimately. That's the worst thing. We think the worst thing about our sin is that it makes God mad at us or it makes us feel bad about ourselves because we default to Christianity being about behavior. It's about keeping the rules, about acting right. And there's a part of Christianity that's about that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But what Hosea is showing us is that there is a relational quality here that God seems to favor more than anything else, that you would know him, that you would be with him, that you would be his people. That the tragedy of sin has separated us from him and has caused us to go in a direction where we no longer know him, where we no longer know what is true, where we no longer know what is good and what is holy, and that is knowing God and God's desires that you would what? Know what is true, know what is good, know what is holy, that you would know him. And so is this where we are left as God's people? Without mercy? As not his people? And the answer to that is no. No. And this gets to the final point, what God truly desires. For many people, the story of the Bible does stop here, which is a Bible without grace, friends. But thankfully, that's not true for Hosea, and it's not true for Scripture as a whole. The pattern in Scripture, generally speaking, is God's faithfulness, our rebellion, God's faithfulness. That's your story. That's my story this morning. God's faithfulness to me, my rebellion, his faithfulness. This is what the Bible is about. It is a story of grace from beginning to end. And we see this in Hosea as we start chapter 3. God has, going back to chapter 1, what he has uh, uh, told Hosea what to do there to go and to marry Gomer. By chapter 2, he lays out this case against her and against Israel as a whole, but then also weaves in his promises in that chapter so that by chapter 3, he comes back to this metaphor, and here are the words that we hear, and I hope this is the sweetest word for you this morning. Again, he tells Hosea, go again. Go again. There's the grace. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man. You know what? This, this implies, just deep dive on Hosea, that, that even as God is telling him to go do this, she is with somebody else. And the stark picture there for us is actually a window into our own hearts and our own spiritual adultery and the, and, and, and the disgustingness of our sin. Yet God would have the grace to say, no, I'm going, I'm going again. I'm going to get you. That's his love and commitment to you. But he tells this to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. I've got to find out about this cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. What God desires is for you to know him relationally, so much so that no amount of your unfaithfulness will ever cause him to stop pursuing you. Go again and again. And again, it doesn't matter how many times she falls into the arms of another. Go again, Hosea. 
go again. And the same pronouncement is made upon you this morning. No amount of spiritual adultery, as we might put it, or unfaithfulness of breaking the rules, as it were, moves you outside of the grace of God. He is still committed to you, and he still desires to be in a relationship with you, to know you intimately. And friends, that is grace. What God desires then is that you see his commitment to you. You see his grace to what? To buy you back. And this begins then to what? Change our hearts. To see this grace. Look, here's the bit. Repentance, which we're all thinking about right now. How does that fit into this? Repentance for Israel is a heart issue as it is for us. And repentance, though, for Israel, what we see here, will never happen if it's just for repentance' sake. That makes Christianity about behavior. It won't happen, and it won't happen if they don't see that God is good. And the same is true for you. True repentance is heart change, and no one changes their heart for a tyrant. You might change your behavior, and history would tell us this, but you will not change your heart. And that's what God desires. And God is not a tyrant. And where do we see this clearest? Let's go to the cross. In Jesus. In Jesus. God, Jesus, is God's faithfulness and full commitment to you, regardless of your unfaithfulness to him. That's what we see when we see Jesus on the cross, where Hosea will buy back Gomer for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley, right? Jesus will buy us what? With his own blood. We see the full fruition of that here at the cross, At the cross, Jesus will be the one who has shown no mercy as God pours out his wrath for him, not you. The cross is where Jesus will be, not my people, not my son, as he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, not you? The cross is where, as Tim Chester writes, God's jealous anger and passionate love come together. God judged Christ for our adultery, for our whoredom, So that we can again, what? Be his family. That you can know him. That he can know you. That's what this is about. This is who God is. This is his commitment to you. In the end, what God desires, friends, is you. Is you. I don't know how that sits with you this morning. I don't know if you believe that. We believe God loves us because the parents got to love us. But does God like me? Does he like me? Would he want to hang out with me? I don't think we believe that. It's just my assumption. Talking about more about myself probably. But his desire in the end is for you. That in Jesus, you would see his love and commitment to you. A few years ago, uh, back in Fort Worth, and I'll close with this, um, Ada and I did a ministry to our fifth and sixth graders at that church, and um, part of the program at this particular stage of the ministry was we would have these, uh, these days where we would uh, have the kids memorize and recite either Bible verses or we were going through the New City Catechism 
Um, so they'd give the question, we, they, could, they could give the answer, and then they would get to pick out of this wonderful assortment of prizes in this basket. Like candy, yeah, frisbees, toys, whatever it is. Like it was just you know, more candy than anything. But this is, this is what they got to do. And you know, part of that motivation, um, part of them showing up even, I'm not going to uh, you know, think that it was for the wonderful teaching, it was to get into that prize basket to get in there and, and, and get something out of that. And, um, you know, everybody did a great job. Everybody memorized something, and everybody got to go into that prize basket, except three girls, um, who, who I won't name, who weren't old enough to be in that, that group ministry. They weren't fifth or sixth graders at this time, but they were watching. And to them, this seemed like a miniature Christmas, all these prizes and candy and fun. Oh, when, when are we, you know, are we going to be able to engage in this? And so none of this, though, occurred to me until it was time to go, and we had to pack up everything, and I'm, I'm lugging all this stuff to my car, and of course I've got the prize basket in my hand, and I go to put it in the back of the car, and that's when I realized I've got a tail, right? I've got a shadow, and it's those three girls again who are wondering, what, what's in there? What are you going to do with this stuff? Can we have a look? Can we get in there? Can we check this out? And this would go on and on. By the time we got home even, right, before, twice before I even got out of the car, can we look in that prize basket? What is in there? Can we have something? Um, um, what are you going to do with that stuff? What's in it? And this would continue on into the next morning. Uh, before breakfast was served, the very first words from one of them was, Daddy, are those prizes still in the back there? Is the prize basket there? Can, we, can I go look at it? And of course, we know what that means, like, I want to take something, but it's just I want to look at it. Is it still there? And then all week, friends, whether we were taking folks to soccer practice or that just coming home from work and they're <clears throat> sleeping and then they're waking each day, can I see the basket? What's in the basket? Uh, is it still there? Are we going to be able to get something from it? The curiosity and intrigue, let alone the fidelity to a basket full of two to three dollar toys, candy, right, all week, it was astounding. It was astounding. They wanted nothing else. Friends, what the Bible is trying to tell you is that this is how God actually feels about you. That this is how God desires you, like a prize basket to small children, for whatever that's worth. His commitment, though, and fidelity towards you is overwhelming. He wants nothing else but you. That God doesn't just love you. He actually likes you and longs to be with you. And when we doubt this on Monday morning or throughout the week, it is our, our job even, and perhaps to remind each other to look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look at Jesus and, and, and what he has done for you, where you see the full extent that God went to to make you his own. That's the story. And it's a story of grace, a story of love to the loveless. God commits to us and promise, right? We break that promise that God goes again and again and again to us in order to show you his commitment and his fidelity to you that he wants nothing else. Would we believe that? Would we believe that? As a church, for the people here of College Park, for our families, would we believe that? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, your words in Hosea that really we, we don't see this picture until we see Jesus. And for many of us this morning, perhaps maybe we, we didn't see the extent of even our own sin as you have related 
that to us through Gomer, we say we're sorry. And I pray that through that we would begin to see and believe more so in your commitment to us. And that we would desire more than anything to know more about that, desire to know you more, or that we would begin to trust again in the new ways of your love and fidelity and commitment to us and begin believing that what your cross tells us is that you want nothing else but for us to belong to you. So my prayer is that we would believe that and we would encourage that belief among each other in the way that we love and serve and reflect Jesus to each other in this community. That the promises are still true regardless of the things that I've done, that God is always in the business of, of forgiving and calling people back to himself. And we say thank you for that. I pray that you would go with us now as we continue in our service, that you would lead us in the direction of repentance where that needs to be, and that you would ultimately, though, show us your grace to us again and again as we meet and, and, and feast with you at your table. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.